I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi. Like other episodes in this series, this one includes some descriptions of sexual and domestic violence. It also has some strong language and discussions of consensual sex. Please take care while you're listening. I don't know why I slept with him, Ronan. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. It was 2006. Karen McDougal, a former Playboy Playmate of the Year, had said yes to a dinner invitation from a businessman and reality TV star named Donald Trump. So our first dinner was at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I was under the assumption that we were having dinner, which means in a restaurant. (laughs) And then I found out we were having dinner there in his little dining area, if you will, (laughs) of his bungalow. It was kind of a shocker for me. You know, now I wouldn't do it. Now I'd be like, "Uh uh-uh, get me out of here now. (laughs) Go tell him to meet me in the restaurant. Karen knew Trump had ties to the modeling world. She'd hoped the conversation might open up career opportunities. You're like, okay, I'm here. Just have the dinner and get it over with and get some business out of this and go home. (laughs) We both had steak. Um, I believe he had steak and potatoes, which was a thing that he would always order. Um, I can't remember if there was dessert or not. I had wine. He doesn't drink, so he didn't have anything but I think a soda. How'd the evening unfold from there? The evening um, didn't go as planned. I thought I'd have dinner and go home and maybe have a job out of this. <laughs> but the dinner um, the dinner turned into other things fairly quickly. I went to the bathroom, and I came out, and he was already undressing. I really didn't know what to think. I was shocked. I had so many thoughts going through my head. What do I do now? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I, what do you think at that moment? <laughs> How do you get out of the situation? Did you you want to get out of the situation? Part of me did, yeah. Of course I did. Yeah. (laughs) And then why didn't you? I ask myself that every day, Ronan. I don't know why I didn't get myself out of the situation. You know, you're stuck in a situation. You know, you don't know his bodyguards around. Like, someone could hurt you if you say no. You don't know what to do. You, you, You don't think. Your brain shuts off at that moment because you have so many, whether it's fear, anxiety, like just so much going through your head. What do I do at this moment? Okay, I give. I don't know. What do you do? Just to totally clarify, you know, when we originally talked, you were always very, very clear, like, this was absolutely consensual. Yes, it was consensual. It was not a me too moment. I think based on where I was in that time of my life, I needed healing from a relationship. I was getting that healing in the wrong way. And now today, looking back, I know that's what it was. It wasn't a real relationship with me now that I think about it. (laughs) No, I wouldn't think like that today at all. Mm -mm. It was terrible. It was a night that would change Karen McDougal's life forever. That would eventually see her dubbed Woman One by prosecutors during a criminal case focused on violations of election law. I really didn't know what catch and kill meant yet. I didn't know the relationship with AMI, with David Pecker, Dylan Trump. I didn't think there was a cover up. I just 
thought they didn't want the story out and I didn't think as to why. I didn't choose to be woman one, trust me. I didn't think I was involved in a cover-up until eventually it started coming out. Knowing now what was going on behind the scenes, that knowing that, I mean, I hate to say this, knowing that I feel like I was part of a major cover-up in history with the presidential whatever, I feel terrible, Ronan. I, I feel like I did a disservice to my country and that's the reason I had to come forward and, and set the record straight. This is the Catch and Kill podcast. I'm Ronan Farrow. In August 2015, Donald Trump and his lawyer, Michael Cohen, met with David Pecker, the chief executive at American Media Inc., the publisher of the National Enquirer. AMI had long used a scheme tabloid editors called Catch and Kill, buying and then burying stories that powerful friends didn't want out in the world. The meeting resulted in an agreement AMI would do more catching and more killing, this time to swing a presidential election. In the episode before this, you heard how AMI put that plan into action a few months later, buying up a rumor that Trump had fathered a child with a former housekeeper. But that transaction was just the beginning. Today, on our final episode, the story of the catch and kill that finally brought it all tumbling down, the one that caused Trump's innermost circle to go from denying the truth to admitting it under oath. He was supposed to pay. He was supposed to pay for the life story of Karen McDougal. I grew up in a little town called Sawyer, Michigan. It's one of those towns, like if you blink your eyes, you miss the town, it's so small. We had a truck stop <laughs> and a laundromat and I think a bar, <laughs> very tiny. But you know, it's a great place to grow up because you became friendly with everybody. But inside Karen's house, life could be violent and chaotic. I did grow up with a stepfather who was severely alcoholic, and it was a very challenging childhood for myself and my siblings. I saw my mother choked. I saw her push through windows. I mean, whatever you name it you see in a movie, that's how my life was growing up. The police were at my house all the time because of my stepfather. And my mother loved us dearly, and she did the best she could. But I think if um, you really look back into my childhood, it kind of gives you an insight of as to why I am the way I am, why I'm very quiet at times where I, I deal with a lot of people's BS because I was taught to basically keep my mouth shut and deal with it. As soon as she could, Karen left town for college in Big Rapids and then moved to Detroit. She wanted to be a teacher. She started working in the nursery room at her church, then taught preschool, four and five-year-olds. I saw what happened at my home and I always had the dream, the desire, the fantasy, whatever you want to call it, to want my own life where all I did was love people, and I just think that's an amazing feeling, that you're actually helping somebody grow and learn. While she was teaching in Michigan, Karen heard about a local modeling competition. People told her she was pretty and should try her luck. So she entered and won. Then she entered a few more, and she won those, too. My mother loved me, don't get me wrong. My siblings loved me, but I really wasn't taught that you are worthy, you are enough. So I learned not to think highly of myself. I thought superficially that being a model would get me noticed, let people like me because I'm cute or whatever. I thought it would be it would be fun. Eventually, a photographer she worked with showed her photos to Playboy. 
they loved me right away. They're like, call her, get her on the phone right now, bring her to L.A. We're shooting her centerfold, which is kind of unheard of. They don't move that quickly. It was a matter of like a week or two max. And I went to California. I shot, and then I became Playmate of the Year. Karen adapted to a new life and a new image. I was around 21 when I got my implants. I became the person everyone told me I needed to be. In Los Angeles, Karen's career took off. In 1999, she was the first woman to be on the cover of Men's Fitness magazine. In the picture, she's wearing a metallic purple bikini. A guy next to her is tugging at the strap of the bikini top with his teeth. There's a big red headline that reads, Total Sex. There's an exclamation point at the end. Karen kept working as a swimsuit model, and in 2005 and 6, she sometimes worked events at the Playboy Mansion. That's what she was doing when she met Donald Trump. Cock-a-doodle-doo, folks. I'm Donald Trump. And there's two things in the world I love. A good deal and a good meal. In 2006, Donald Trump was on the rise. The 90s hadn't been great for him. Four high-profile bankruptcies, two higher-profile divorces. In the early 2000s, though, Trump's fortunes turned around, mostly due to one thing. I used my brain, I used my negotiating skills, and I worked it all out. Now my company's bigger than it ever was, it's stronger than it ever was. To sell The Apprentice, the producers of the show had to sell Trump. So they portrayed his business as thriving, calling him the biggest developer in New York, which he wasn't. This image of Trump as a powerful magnet breathed a kind of second life into him as a media star. He was everywhere. Daytime talk shows, Sesame Street, Late Night. That cock-a-doodle-doo clip is actually from SNL. He was good TV, and he liked it. You know, the show has gotten great reviews. I've gotten great reviews. Everything's gotten great reviews except for one thing, my hair. Okay. Gets bad reviews. And he was willing to say anything. What do you think of Lindsay Lohan? Right. She's probably deeply troubled and therefore great in bed. How come the deeply troubled women, right. they're always the best in bed? And that brings us to the night of June 6, 2006. After each task, the winning team will live in a beautiful mansion. While the losing team will live in the yard. Intense. At this point, Trump was hosting season six of The Apprentice on NBC. Teams had competed to design and model their own swimsuit lines, and the winners were treated to a pool party at the Playboy Mansion, alongside Hugh Hefner and dozens of current and former Playmates. Karen McDougal was there. She was working. She was even in uniform. That night at the party, there were a bunch of girls in bunny costumes. I was wearing a pink kind of crocheted dress or cover-up, if you will, over a swimsuit. I was wearing that, and I think he said he liked the color pink or he liked the dress on me or something like that. Hi, guys. Hi guys. Oh. Welcome. <laughs> You can see Karen briefly in some of the B-roll from the episode. For her, it was just another day on the job. Actually, I was watching my clock, like, can I go home yet? <laughs> I want to go. <laughs> I know everyone thinks those parties are glamour and fun, but not when you're working it. No, you just want to go home. Trump had been married to the Slovenian model Melania Kanaus for less than two years at that point. She'd just given birth to their son, Baron. But Karen caught his eye. She says her friends noticed him watching her from across the party. And then he approached her. Mostly it was the same stuff he always says. You're beautiful. You're so gorgeous. Karen dismissed it at first. 
diplomatically, professionally. But Trump kept coming back. At one point, um, the house bunny, that's what we call her, her name, her name is Lacey. She's like, oh my gosh, I think you're his next wife. And I just started laughing, like, whatever. Before the end of the night, Trump approached her one last time. I think with a person like that, the more you brush them off, the more they want you, because I don't don't think they're, be, they're used to being told no. And he asked her my number, and I'm like, okay, I'll give it to you. And he said, Keith, come here. That's Keith Schiller, Trump's bodyguard. And he's like, write down her number. So I gave it to Keith, who wrote it on his hand, and I think that was it. I'll be in contact. Okay, thank you. Have a good night. You too. That was it. I really didn't think I'd get a call. I really didn't think anything special. I thought, well, if he calls me and the modeling agency wants to work with me or give me a job, I'm in. If not, whatever. Another party gone. (laughs) No big deal. You have to understand, Ronan, working as a playmate, you go to a lot of these functions. If you're half naked, a guy's going to hit on you, right? I, I think we're just so used to it that it wasn't really registering to me. Like, in one ear, out the other. But a few days later, she got the call. Trump wanted her to join him for dinner. They made a plan, and when the night came, he sent the same bodyguard to pick up Karen at her apartment. Uh, Keith called me and said, Mr. Trump would like to have dinner with you. And I said, okay. He took me to the Beverly Hills Hotel, only he parked on the side of the street. And I didn't really understand why, but I thought, well, maybe he's just walking me through to the back side of the restaurant. And that's how a night at Donald Trump's bungalow turned into what Karen says was a nine-month affair. They would meet up every time he was in L.A. Sometimes she'd travel with him or visit him at his apartment in Trump Tower. At one point, we had walked in his room, and then he showed me Melania's separate bedroom, and that's where she likes to go to read or get away or something like that. And I just kept moving on. I'm like, okay, gotta go. And it's kind of struck me like, wow, what are you doing here? And there are other people involved, and this could be hurting somebody, and this is not cool. (laughs) I was actually at the point where, you know, I was embarrassed of myself. I looked in the mirror and said, what are you doing? And my mom had made a comment because she knew I was talking to him on the phone. She's like, you know he's married, right? I don't know. I just, at that moment, I I said, I I have to end this. I feel really bad. I have to end it. I called him and said, it's not working. And okay, so I told him, my mom doesn't approve. And he he said, what, that old hag? And I'm like, wow. I'm like, that's my mom. Like, you're going to call her that? And you're the same age. (laughs) It's rude. Um, That was it. It was done. After the break, a school teacher from a small town in the Midwest gets drawn into an underworld where porn, the tabloids, and a black market for political information all intersect.
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. After the breakup, Karen moved on. Time passed. Trump started appearing more regularly on Fox News. And then on June 16th, 2015, he entered the presidential race. I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. I've been... Karen was watching one of the Republican debates when a friend of hers, Johnny Crawford, brought up the idea of selling the story of her affair with Trump. So I told her, I said, well, if this relationship was more than a platonic relationship and it's it something more serious, this could be worth something. And I kind of looked at her, and I know her real well, so when she got a particular look on her face, I knew it would be gone farther. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. He goes, you know, if you really did have an affair with this man, the story's worth a lot of money. And I just blew it off. I'm like, no way. I am not sharing that story, Johnny. Not a chance. And you know what? Am I sharing that story? But it was starting to look like she wouldn't have a choice. That spring, a fellow Playboy model started tweeting about Karen's affair with Trump. And Crawford was persistent. Karen finally said he could look into ways to sell the story. Crawford turned to Jay Gardena, ex-husband and frequent porn scene partner of Jenna Jameson, and a serial entrepreneur who hawked everything from hangover remedies to fake diamonds. Gardena, in turn, enlisted J.J. Rendon, a polarizing Latin American political operative. In May 2016, Karen flew to Florida to meet with him. When I went to Miami, I didn't know who this person was. So um, once I learned the backstory, that's when I was like, oh boy. (laughs) Rendon is known for negative campaigning on social media, and if you ask his critics, hacking elections, though he denies this. He practices Zen Buddhism, dresses in all black, and lives in a penthouse in Miami with a large collection of samurai armor. He likes a samurai, yeah. He does. (laughs) Yeah. I was terrified, so I did not want to go meet this man, especially alone. I was literally shaking. I was so scared. But I did it, because Johnny says, like, you have to. I'm like, okay. She says Rendon seemed curious, but ultimately passed. And then he gets like, you don't have a story. Like, go home and, you know, be the nice girl that you are. I'm like, okay. (laughs) That was it. But the men around her weren't deterred. Johnny came home one day and said, hey, I think I have your story sold. And it was kind of shocking to me. I'm like, story sold? What? Crawford had talked to Gardena about a new plan. He goes, yeah, I talked to this other person, and he put you in touch with an attorney. The attorney was Keith Davidson, whose firm in Los Angeles focuses on SDD lawsuits, sexual assault, and personal injury. Davidson trafficked in a lot of worlds, entertainment, tabloids, porn, as he puts it, the cornucopia of Los Angeles. He also had a long track record in what he calls story brokering, helping people sell salacious stories or helping other people buy those stories and bury them. Of course, not every story that arrived on Davidson's desk was true. What portion of the stories that get brought to you do you find credible? (laughs) Uh, there's there's definitely a weeding out process. I bet. And in Karen's case, 
did that story seem credible, not credible to you? Extremely credible. Because? She had receipts. Lots. By then, AMI's efforts to suppress stories for Trump were ramping up right alongside his presidential campaign. The meeting where Trump and AMI formally agreed to their scheme had happened in August 2015. And a few months after that, the publisher had paid off Dino Sejudin, the Trump Tower doorman. You'll remember hearing in the last episode how they worked to keep him quiet about a rumored Trump love child. Then, in spring 2016, a lawsuit was filed by an anonymous Jane Doe, who said that Trump had raped her in 1994, when she was 13 years old. She claimed the incident took place at a party hosted by Jeffrey Epstein. She posted a video with her face obscured and her voice altered. Second time that I saw Mr. Trump, he was uh, onlooking at an orgy. And Tiffany came over to me and and said that Donald Trump had requested that I perform oral sex on him. Like the doorman story, there wasn't much evidence to back up her claim, and it wasn't clear it was true. The woman wouldn't talk to reporters, and a former Jerry Springer producer who'd pushed dubious celebrity scandals in the past was involved in filing the suit. He was being really, really rough, and, and I started to get scared. But also like the doorman story, AMI engaged in a real effort to squash the story while communicating with Trump's team. After the suit was filed, Dylan Howard, AMI's chief content officer, called Trump's attorney, Michael Cohen, and told him not to worry, that they were looking into it. The tabloid sent a reporter to an address listed in Jane Doe's lawsuit, but they didn't find anyone. There was no opportunity to buy a story here. But at a time when no one else was covering the story until the facts became clearer, AMI did start running headlines exonerating Trump. Lisa Bloom, a prominent attorney and self-styled advocate for women, took on Jane Doe's case. And then Dylan Howard put in a call to Bloom, warning her away from the matter. Eventually, Bloom canceled a planned press conference with Jane Doe and dropped the case. She has decided that she's too afraid to show her face. She's been here all day, ready to do it, but unfortunately, she's in terrible fear. So we're going to have to reschedule. I apologize. The press conference was never rescheduled, and Jane Doe never spoke publicly again. Howard later told me he did call Bloom, but was just advising, quote, a longtime friend. Soon after, Howard and Bloom would both wind up working with Harvey Weinstein to discredit his accusers. Also in spring 2016, at around the same time Jane Doe filed her lawsuit against Trump, Karen McDougal connected with Keith Davidson, the lawyer who specialized in salacious stories. And Davidson quickly reached out to Dylan Howard at AMI. So you tell this story to Dylan Howard? Yes. And how does Dylan react? I think that there was an interest, uh, and he expressed that there would be an interest. But I, I think at that time, anyone would have been interested. And tell me about your relationship with him. It's long, long term. Because you've dealt with him on a, a variety of stories. Yeah, like for 10 plus years. That June, Karen and the group around her looking to sell the story headed to L.A. to meet with Howard. We all met in Keith's uh, Beverly Hills office and we chatted for a couple hours. Howard initially passed and then offered just $10,000. 
But Trump's poll numbers were on the rise, and other media outlets were starting to chase the story. ABC came along. I told them my story. They wanted to shoot. I kept pushing off the shoot. I said, like, I'm really nervous. I don't want to do this. Like, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm scared. Like, I don't want it. I even said, I don't want to be the next Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> I really was scared, Ronan. I didn't want to come out. First and foremost, my family. I didn't want to drag them through the mud because I know it would affect them. Finally, AMI sweetened their offer, $150,000, along with various career perks they could arrange for Karen through their publishing network, magazine cover shoots, a monthly fitness column. So the deal was um, all these jobs, opportunities, et cetera, et cetera, and my story didn't have to come out. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't have to come out? <laughs> um, basically, the story was going to be hidden and never come out, but you're getting all this work. I'm like... That's a win-win. Okay, now we're talking. On August 5th, 2016, McDougal signed a contract granting AMI exclusive ownership of the story of the affair. She was subject to a six-figure penalty if she ever talked about it anywhere. The contract was supposed to give her $150,000. Davidson, Crawford, and Gardena took 45%, leaving her with just over $80,000. The deal is signed, and you put the paperwork away in a filing cabinet. Yes. Did you think that was the end of it? Yes. Karen had no idea that Trump, through his lawyer Michael Cohen, had agreed to reimburse AMI. Eventually, AMI's chief executive, David Pecker, apparently worried about how that money trail would look from an election law standpoint, contacted Cohen and told him to call off the reimbursement and tear up any related paperwork. Soon after Karen's deal closed, another woman claiming to have had an affair with Trump and also wanting to sell her story enlisted Davidson, the porn actress Stormy Daniels. The entire universe has seen my butthole. (laughs) Like, I'm pretty hard to embarrass. Davidson called Dylan Howard at AMI again. This time, the tabloid publisher took a pass. The McDougal deal had been expensive, and there were the legal concerns— But Howard did insist that Davidson get in touch with Michael Cohen, which he initially hadn't wanted to do. I had his number. I didn't call him because I thought he was a complete jerk. You see, Davidson and Cohen had a history, a history that even included Stormy Daniels. I had a a bit of a, just a bit of a relationship with him. Davidson had represented Daniels five years earlier, back in 2011, when a gossip blog posted an item about her alleged affair with Trump, and she'd hired Davidson to get the post taken down. Davidson had dealt with Cohen during that episode, and the two didn't exactly hit it off. I mean, he literally crawled through through the phone lines and was just like... I, I don't know, a minute, minute and a half, like, profanity-laced call. You son of a bitch, and you'll never see the end. You know, you'll, you'll be buried. You'll never see the sunlight again. You'll, you have no idea who you're fucking with. And, um, and then as, as soon as I said, whoa, 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 after a minute and a half, when he finally calmed down, I said, look, I, I'm trying to get it taken down. He's like, oh, oh, what's your name again? <laughs> <laughs> so here they were five years later with Daniels wanting to sell the story rather than take it down. Davidson, at AMI's urging, got past his issues with Cohen. I called Cohen. I called Michael Cohen. And it, and it proved to be a very, very difficult transaction, 
what something that should have been very, very easy turned out to be very difficult. Cohen agreed to pay $130,000 for the rights to the story. Daniels would have to sign an NDA, of course. They set a deadline for Cohen to transfer the money. But as the day approached, Daniels' manager, Gina Rodriguez, began expressing concerns that Cohen wouldn't deliver the payment. Gina was saying, hey, you know, he's he's screwing around. He's waiting and waiting, and he's going to miss the funding deadline, uh, and then he's going to lose this election. And when he loses this election, we're not going to get shit. Do you think she was right, by the way, that Michael Cohen was going to wait it out and try to stiff you guys? Probably. (laughs) Probably. The deadline came and went. Daniels threatened to cancel the contract. And then, in October 2016, Cohen got back in touch, suddenly insistent that the deal go forward. What do you think made the second time different? Why did it go through that time? Timing. The Access Hollywood tape happened. Yeah. It is the point of boom. Star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. Almost immediately after the Access Hollywood tape was made public, Cohen called Davidson and paid up. So what could have been an AMI transaction became a transaction Michael Cohen was undertaking directly. Correct. In the contract, Davidson used pseudonyms, something he often did to protect his clients. Tell me about the pseudonyms you picked. So I, I do so many of these, you know, deals. And so I think it was Polly Peterson or Polly Plaintiff or something. I don't even remember. It was Peggy Peterson Peggy and David Peterson. Dennison. Yeah, David Dennison. I do remember David Dennison. Who is David Dennison? David Dennison. I played youth hockey and he was on my high school hockey team in, 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 in <laughs> Massachusetts. And poor David Dennison. Nobody was ever supposed to see this agreement. And poor old Dave Dennison has ended up on the front page of every single newspaper in the world in 60 minutes. And <laughs> poor old Dave Dennison. Did you ever have a conversation with him about this unwanted 15 minutes of fame you gave him? <laughs> um, yeah, he's not happy. He's not happy. <laughs> well, that seems fair. Yeah. <laughs> it came to me that you know his wife at one point said, Who is Peggy Peterson? (laughs) Just before the election, a reporter from the Wall Street Journal called AMI for comment on a story about a contract with a Playboy model named Karen McDougal. Panic set in at AMI. Employees there later told me that Dylan Howard ordered documents taken out of a safe in his office in New York and shredded. The employees said it was an effort to destroy sensitive documents about Trump. The Wall Street Journal claims the National Enquirer paid a former Playboy model $150,000 for exclusive rights to the story of her affair with Donald Trump, but never published it. On November 4th, four days before the election, the Wall Street Journal revealed the existence of Karen's contract. She still wasn't talking, but the story was unraveling anyway. I was um, a little panicked, like, oh my gosh, The world's going to know now. I'm becoming Monica. I don't want this. What can I do? I was was actually shocked that it was kind of very nervous. I was scared to death, Ronan. AMI scrambled to contain the problem. They denied there was any deal with Trump. On election day, Howard got on the phone with a lawyer representing Karen, promising to boost her career and offering to hire a publicist to help her handle interviews. She stayed quiet. Trump won. 
And now, I'd like to take this moment to thank some of the people who really helped me with this, what they are calling tonight, very, very historic victory. Trump was scrambling, too. For a few months, he and Cohen had been discussing how to deal with the possibility that any dirt AMI had accumulated about him might leak, especially if something happened to David Pecker. Here he is sounding worried about that in a September 2016 call with Cohen. I need to open up a company for the transfer of all of that info regarding our friend David, you know, so that I'm going to do that right away. I've actually come up and I've spoken spoken to Alan Weisselberg about how to set the whole thing up. Uh, Alan Weisselberg is the chief financial officer of the Trump Organization. The quality of the recording, as you can hear, isn't great. The funding, presumably, is a payment of some sort through a shell company for materials in AMI's possession. So what are we going to pay? Funding, that, uh, yes. Um, and it's all the yeah, stuff, all the stuff, because, you know, you never know where that company, no, you never you know where he's going to be. Gets it, but Correct. So I'm, I'm all over that. And I spoke to Alan about it when it comes time. After the election, Cohen started leaning on AMI leadership asking them to send what Cohen referred to in that call as all the stuff. Turns out, right around when Karen got in touch with AMI, Dylan Howard had compiled a list of all the Trump dirt in AMI's archives. I eventually saw it. It contained about 60 stories. We had heard rumors that the uh, National Enquirer and or its parent company, AMI, had a safe of secrets where they kept stories on Donald Trump. There were references to at least five rumored extramarital affairs and one sexual assault allegation by the makeup artist Jill Harth. It also included less explosive stories about Trump's feuds with John McCain, Rosie O'Donnell, and Martha Stewart. The list had a column noting which stories about Trump had been, quote, killed by AMI outlets. But most of the information on it is now public. AMI was ultimately too worried about legal issues to turn over all the dirt to Trump. But they did ship boxes of documents up from the company's archives in Florida to take a look at them. And that brings us to the most interesting thing about that list. Not its contents, but the fact that sometime later, when all this became a scandal, a senior staffer at AMI checked the company's safes and found that a lot of the documents related to those stories had gone missing. Howard's colleagues immediately recalled the shredding party before the election. Howard maintains he never destroyed anything. After Trump's inauguration in January 2017, the questions about his relationship with AMI kept coming. That month, the Wall Street Journal also disclosed the existence of the contract with Stormy Daniels. That spring... Jeffrey Tubin, a staff writer for The New Yorker who was working on a story about AMI, started raising all sorts of questions about the Karen contract. I emailed Karen McDougal about this whole scenario, and all I got back from her was an email that said, I don't really like to talk about things other than my interests and passions, and that's health, wellness, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, she wasn't talking about it. And uh, that's sort of where I left things. It was an odd response. And as it turned out, Karen didn't write it. Dylan Howard and a publicist working for AMI did. 
When he learned that Tubin was reaching out to McDougal, Howard had emailed her exactly what he wanted to say with the subject line, SEND THIS, all caps. How does it make you feel in retrospect? How did it make you feel at the time? He was really writing a script for you. You know, at the time, I, I just looked at it like I was doing part of the job. You know, I signed a contract. Tubin published McDougal's quote, along with assurances from both David Pecker and Dylan Howard that their decisions about covering Trump were purely about sales, that there was no secret deal. Knowing what you do now, do you feel like you kind of got duped by them? You know, it reminds me of what it was like when I was a prosecutor dealing with witnesses. He just didn't tell me a lot of the story. What I didn't realize and what I was not told and what I think it's fair to say I was lied about was how much this wasn't just for business, but how much it was really about Pecker helping Donald Trump get elected president of the United States. I was completely clueless, didn't know the players involved, didn't know the behind-the-scenes movements. I felt like I was a little chess piece, like a pawn, just being moved when they needed to move me. That summer, after Karen stayed quiet and sent the agreed-upon answers, she got a call from Keith Davidson, who had a message. David Pecker wants to have lunch with you. I'm like, why? <laughs> he goes, well... They said they want to offer you these jobs. Can come meet with lunch. It'd be worth your while. AMI flew Karen to New York to have lunch with Pecker and Howard at an Italian restaurant called Il Postino. It's pretty upscale. White glove service. It was empty except for their table. Keith Davidson was also there. That was a hell of a lunch. You what know, does that mean? Like you hear stories of, I don't think the three martini lunch exists anymore, but this was about as close as you could get to it. It was like a three-hour lunch, you know, with numerous courses. The waiters uh, gave a lot of deference to, I think, you know, who was their regular, Mr. Pecker. And um, that was where the relationship between uh, Karen and, and AMI fell apart. Howard and Pecker made outlandish promises to her. Netflix specials, a makeup line. They implied she could be the next Kardashian. She could host their red carpet coverage. There were so many jobs thrown at me, and I was just like, in heaven. I, this was a lot of work for me, and I was excited. So I said, yeah, let's, yeah, let's get this done. It was like a slow-motion train wreck I could see happening right in front of my eyes. Because Pecker was over-promising? Yes. At the end of the lunch, Pecker gave McDougal a handshake pulled her in close, and thanked her for her loyalty. Yes, David Pecker thanked me for my loyalty. I did not ask what he meant. I just said, you're welcome. I'm like, okay. The big promises from that lunch never materialized. It never happened. It never happened. I'm still waiting. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> Eventually, Karen stopped working with Keith Davidson. She got a new lawyer, Carol Heller, who took one look at Karen's contracts with both AMI and Davidson and realized something was up. I had to look at the contract, and <laughs> it's kind of funny because you're looking at the magazine covers, and you're looking at the way that it's written, and then all of a sudden you come to, oh, by the way, uh, you are giving us your lifetime story rights in perpetuity to any affair you had with a then-married man. 
which you have to admit is a little odd to be in the middle of a performance contract for modeling. And I knew that this was much, much bigger than just the two of us. She told Karen the story was news, that she should consider talking to a reporter. And then she put Karen in touch with me. Hello. Hey, Karen. How are you? Hi, Ronan. I'm okay. How are you? Hi. Good. I'm glad to hear that. What did you think when when we first made contact? Uh, I thought I didn't want to talk to you, Ronan, because I was terrified and scared to death and still (laughs) telling Carol, I think you're being crazy. I'm going to get in trouble for this. I'm going to get sued. I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to be bankrupt. Whatever. They're going to kill me. I didn't know what to think, Ronan. I was terrified to talk to you. Eventually, she decided it was worth confronting those fears to expose a system of silence. In February 2018, amidst a barrage of legal threats from AMI, The New Yorker published its story, with Karen going on the record for the first time. What was it like watching that New Yorker story break, that moment where you first started going on the record? I hid, Ronan. I did. I hid. I shut the TV off. I wasn't taking calls only from Carol or my family. That was it. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't go to the gym. I didn't go to church. I didn't do anything. I was too terrified. And then I was scared to death because I'm like, what next? Now what? I'm going to get sued. These people are looking for me. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want anyone to like put a tracker in my car. I was scared. The dam was breaking. And soon, AMI had more to worry about than reporters. In April 2018, the FBI raided Michael Cohen's hotel and office, in part to gather information on the Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels transactions. Among Cohen's files were communications with executives at AMI, as well as with Keith Davidson. What did you think when you saw that news? Oh, shit. Oh, shit, like you knew they were probably looking at these transactions in part. Oh, shit, shit, shit. Federal prosecutors in New York were looking at whether the hush payments violated election law, whether they exceeded the maximum amount allowed for an undisclosed payment intended to influence an election. They called Davidson in for questioning. I believe you and I were having a meal immediately prior to the first round of questioning that you did with them. Yes, I believe that's right. And I got to put you in a cab and send you down to... (laughs) The Southern District. Right. You seemed apprehensive. Uh, you know, the weight of the federal government is a, is a substantial thing. It was the beginning of a lot of questioning. And, you know, my 15 to 20 hours of dealing with the Southern District of New York, uh, that the timeline was extremely important to them. It was always the timeline. Every single thing was a timeline. And they wanted to put in place every bit of fact and every single assertion that had been made by anyone in this tale. Trump and Cohen were at the time claiming that the payments were to cover up Trump's alleged affairs as a way of protecting his marriage, that they had nothing to do with the election. For prosecutors looking to undercut that argument, the timing of the payments, especially to Daniels, was crucial. Keep in mind that this affair you know, happened in 2007. They knew about it in 2007 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. We dealt with it in 11. Skip forward another five years to 2016. They knew about it before the primary and after the primary. They knew about it in August and September. But it didn't settle until, you know, a week, week and a half before the election. And the day after Access Hollywood. That was the boom point. Cohen tried to cooperate with prosecutors selectively, 
to share just enough to get a lenient sentence, but stay mum about the rest. Prosecutors weren't happy with that. They recommended a substantial sentence, and the judge agreed. Cohen got three years in prison for campaign finance law violations, tax evasion, and lying to Congress. Last February, when Cohen seemed to have nothing left to lose, he gave an operatic six-hour testimony on Capitol Hill in front of the House Oversight Committee. He wasn't holding back anymore. I was involved in several of these um, catch-and-kill episodes to avoid any money being traced back to him that could negatively impact his campaign. Everybody's job at the Trump Organization is to protect Mr. Trump. Every day, most of us knew we were coming in and we were going to lie for him on something. And that became the norm. The same day Michael Cohen was sentenced, David Pecker and Dylan Howard flipped. Now, it's only been a couple of hours since Michael Cohen was sentenced, and now AMI has gone to the Southern District and said, we basically want immunity and we will tell you what we know. They received immunity in the case, as did Alan Weisselberg, the Trump Organization's CFO, so long as they did not commit any other crimes. Shortly thereafter, AMI heard from Karen McDougal. I wanted my freedom back. I wanted my freedom, my story. Like, I, I wanted to be able to, sh- to take my story and tuck it away if I wanted to or tell it if I want to. I didn't want them to own it. Karen sued AMI and secured a settlement that released her from her agreement with the company and gave her back the rights to her story. I do have a lot more to say, Ronan, but again, I'm going to save that for when I'm ready to tell it. <laughs> How did it change your perspective when you learned that your deal wasn't the only transaction like this to bury a story about Trump? I was shocked, actually. I I couldn't believe it. I was really shocked when I found out there were a lot more stories out there like mine. Um, It's kind of amazing how powerful people can do that. Powerful people with a lot of money. They they just pay people off. It's, It's really shocking. I'm sure it goes on everywhere. And it's kind of sad, actually. Karen didn't get back on her feet immediately. After a long struggle with illness she believes was related to her breast implants, she had them removed a few years ago. She became increasingly religious, and she finally feels she's reclaiming her voice. I'm the person I want to be, and it has nothing to do with the way I look. I don't tolerate the BS anymore. I don't need to, I don't have to, and I'm stronger than that. So I'm a different woman today than I was my whole life. Karen got certified to work with special needs kids. And these days, she's back to her first passion. You started as a teacher and you're a caretaker now again, trying to impart some lessons and some wisdom. What's the lesson you would teach about all this? I guess the lesson that I would teach is never let anyone silence you for anything. If you have a problem, say it. If you have a fear, share it. If you see something that's not right, tell somebody. If someone's doing something not right to you, never hold back. Don't be worried about someone hurting you or harming you or ruining your reputation. Just go ahead and say it because you are your own mind. If you don't say it, you harbor it all, you don't heal, and your life is not going to be as good as you want it to be. It's it's like you're, you're going to be all bottled up and you're not going to share what you want to share. And I just think you just have to be you and go with that. I get asked a lot. Why was Harvey Weinstein held accountable to the extent he has been when others seem immune to that kind of accountability? Well, if there's one thing I've learned doing this reporting, 
It's that the systems that shield powerful people and enable criminal behavior, the circles of mutual protection in media and politics and law, are alive and well. And I can tell you that there were moments in this reporting where it seemed like the story was never going to break, where the obstacles seemed insurmountable, where the status quo seemed immovable. The story was dead at NBC, for all intents and purposes, for me. But also, there was another story now that I had a certain responsibility to pay attention to, which is the NBC killing the story. But then, so often, I caught a break I didn't expect. Someone who was supposed to enforce the silence broke it open. If I allow this to happen and I walk away and I don't do anything, then I'm complicit in allowing the media the way of life I believe in, to be attacked and to be changed. And that could be irreversible. A brave source came forward with a piece of evidence. They would never thought I had those recordings. I'm from nowhere. I'm nothing. Who am I? I have no power. I'm a model. (laughs) Journalists threw their weight behind the truth rather than killing the story. You never stop reporting. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of guts to come out with a story like this. Those people are the reason you're hearing stories like the ones I've reported. And the whistleblowers, the sources, the reporters banging their heads against the wall trying to shine a light on dark places, I don't see them stopping anytime soon. But no one can do this on their own. And there are more stories to tell. If you ever have a tip, my email is ronan underscore farrow at newyorker.com. The Catch and Kill podcast is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and me, Ronan Farrow. It's produced by Sophie Bridges, Sharina Ong, Unjin Lee, and Janelle Pfeiffer, who took this last episode home. Our senior producer is Eric Mendel. Editing by Joel Lovell. Pineapple's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Production support from Jonathan Menhivar, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, Emily Becker, Barry Finkel, and Noor Ibrahim. Fact-checking by Sean Lavery. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions, First Com, and Marmoset. This is all based on reporting I did for my book, Catch and Kill, available where you buy your books and as an audiobook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>